welcome to our next episode of Two Truths and a Lie, an NSMC podcast. Let us go over the ground rules first. One at a time, each member of our education panel will make a statement and another panel member will give their take on whether they think it is a truth or a lie. Our presenter will then educate us all on whether the statement is correct or incorrect and why. So let us warm up our lie detectors for today. Let's meet our players firstly. I am your host, Dr. Anushka Krishnan, nephrologist from Perth, Australia. Our other panelists for today are Dr. Christina Popper, Dr. Priya John, and Dr. Momin Abbasi. Could each of you please introduce yourselves? Hey everyone, this is Dr. Priya John. I'm consultant nephrologist from Hyderabad, India. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Momin. I'm a nephrology fellow in Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem. Hi there, my name is Christina Popa, an early career nephrologist. Great, so let us start. Priya will present her statement first and Momin will give us his thoughts. Thank you, Anushka. So here comes a largely debatable part about diet and chronic kidney disease, the protein restriction part. Is it recommended or not? 2020 KDOKI guidelines recommend low-protein diet of 0.5 to 0.6 gram per kg ideal body weight in chronic kidney disease stage 3 to 5 in metabolically stable diabetic and non-diabetic patients for reducing the risk of progression to end-stage renal disease, death and improving the quality of life. Okay, I think that was the recommendation in the past, but I heard plant-based diet can slow progression of CKD. So I will allow myself to think that it is a lie, but I would love to hear more about it from you, Priya. Thanks, Momin. Yeah, the statement is false. So before we get into the statement per se, I would like to uh, define what is metabolically stable here means. Metabolically stable indicates uh, absence of any active inflammatory or any infectious disease and no prior hospitalization within the last two weeks and absence of poorly controlled diabetes and other diseases such as uh, cancer and in the absence of immunosuppressive medications. So before we discuss about the protein requirement in chronic kidney disease, let's see what is low protein diet, very low protein diet and high protein diet. The recommended level for low protein diet is 0.28 to 0.4 gram per kg ideal body weight per day with additional keto acid and amino acid analogs to meet the protein requirement. Low protein diet is providing 0.5 to 0.6 gram per kg ideal body weight per day and high protein diet is more than 1.2 gram per kg ideal body weight per day. As we all know every day approximately 250 grams of protein uh, is catabolized leading to the protein catabolic products which are normally cleared by the kidneys and excreted in the urine. When kidney function declines there will be accumulation of uh, uh, toxins like P-crisyl sulfate, indoxyl sulfate, trimethyl amino ox uh, oxide and FGF23 which are all uh, metabolic end products of the proteins uh, which will get accumulated and uh, act as uremic toxins. The rationale for reducing the dietary protein intake in chronic kidney disease is that a lower protein load reduces the hypofiltration and lowers the production of uremic toxins. The evidence of lower protein diet comes from uh, many uh, previous randomized control trials conducted in early 80s by Rossman et al. Uh, who randomized 248 patients to a low-protein diet, uh, which was 0.4 to 0.6 gram per kg per day. Who, and this study concluded that 
low protein diet was only helpful in patients with primary glomerulonephritis. In early 90s, Locatelli et al. enrolled 456 adult patients who were randomized either to a low protein diet or a normal control protein diet. And they were stratified according to three groups uh, according to the baseline plasma creatinine. And this study did not also find uh, any benefit of renal survival. In, uh, the recent randomized control trial by Ciarenso et al. in 2009 included 423 patients with chronic kidney disease stage 4 and 5 low, uh, randomized uh, to either um, uh, low protein diet and, or normal protein diet. And after a median follow-up of 32 months, uh, this study concluded that low protein diet had no effect on any of the outcomes, uh, neither protein calorie malnutrition nor dialysis death or the composite outcome of dialysis or death. Accordingly, several meta-analyses indicate that very low protein diet supplemented with keto acids delay the initiation of maintenance dialysis and significantly reduce the urea production along with having potential benefits on insulin resistance and oxidative stress. However, in patients with diabetes, protein intake of a little uh, higher range is recommended of about 0.6 to 0.8 gram per kg per day is recommended. In hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis, there is absence of randomized controlled trials for protein intake and outcomes. So based on the observational studies, the recommended protein intake in, is 1 to 1.2 gram per kg per day in a stable metabolic states and with adequate energy intake. It is not always the quantity of protein but also the quality of proteins uh, that uh, matters. Not all proteins produce the same amount of acid that needs to be neutralized. Animal protein and especially the red meat tends to be higher in methionine and cysteine both of which generate sulfuric acid in their metabolism. So Lu et al. used the Singapore Chinese Health Study to look at total protein and the types of protein in over about 63,000 people and he examined the risk of end-stage renal disease with 15 years of follow-up. This study concluded that total protein was related to the risk of ESRD but it was not dose-related. However, there was a strong dose-dependent relationship to red meat intake and increased risk of ESRD. However, this wasn't seen with other protein sources like poultry, fish, eggs or other dairy products. There is also insufficient evidence to recommend a particular protein, whether plant versus animal. So now that we have too many good drugs like RAS inhibitors and SGLT2 inhibitors, why sacrifice some of the good things like food in life, for which adherence is very thin and not long-lasting? Thank you, Priya. That was very insightful indeed. Well, our next presenter is going to be Dr. Merman, who will now present his statement, and Christina will then tell us what she thinks about it. Okay, here is my statement. The recommendation to lower serum phosphate aggressively toward the normal range in order to improve clinical outcome is based on expert opinion and observational studies only. What do you think, Christina? We already know that phosphate phosphate levels associates with so many adverse outcomes but we don't really know uh, what is associate information associative information or maybe just um, uh, causative information maybe uh, the statement is true that's right christina it is true you know hyperphosphatemia is a common complication of advanced kidney disease and till now, epidemiological studies and experimental data suggested that there is an association between elevated serum phosphate and increased mortality. 
And based on this data, the nephrology community adopted opinion-based guidelines that recommended lowering serum phosphate concentration toward the normal range in ESKD patients undergoing maintenance dialysis. Achievement of this goal entails three elements for patients, the restriction of dietary phosphate and adherence to dialysis, and as well as a treatment with phosphate binders. Till now, there were no RCTs that has shown that any phosphate binder demonstrated a beneficial effect on hard clinical outcomes. And there are no completed randomized controlled trials that have tested whether lowering serum phosphate levels improves clinical outcomes. Current guidelines are predicted on the assumption that, that tight phosphate control will improve outcomes, but the association between high serum phosphate and poor outcomes does not prove causality. Moreover, dietary restriction of phosphate may compromise dietary enjoyment, and biodiners each have important risks. This is a major uncertainty that affects our daily clinical practice, and hopefully there are two large ongoing trials right now, the phosphate trial and the high-low trial, and we hope that they will shed more light on this question. Thank you, Momin. That was very interesting. Christina will now present her statement, which I will ponder upon, and this will be followed by our final statement by me, and Priya will share her opinion on this. Thank you. My statement for today is, CKD patients have a higher taste detection threshold for salt. I think this may be true, Christina, although I must admit I haven't really looked into the literature into this. Uh, I think I did see some interesting uh, studies looking at this in the normal pop or the general population itself. I do often tell my patients to flavor their foods with herbs, spices, lemon and garlic rather than putting more salt in it. So I'm looking forward to what you have to say. Nice suggestions for your patients. Did you know approximately one-third of the CKD patients have a taste dysfunction? Advanced CKD stages are associated with taste dysfunction. Of four kinds of um, taste, the salty one is affected the most in CKD patients. Cross-sectional study, including more than 40, 400 patients, uh, Non-dialyzed patients and the uh, 70 controls patients uh, showed uh, higher uh, salt concentrations uh, is needed in uh, CKD control to detect salt than in non-CKD. Few most cross-sectional studies revealed decreased salt perception in both hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis uh, compared with non-CKD. Taking uh, this into physiopathological domain, Salty taste occurs uh, through sodium channels on the membranes on the taste bud. A salty taste is perceived only when it uh, is above the background concentration on salivary threshold. A salty taste is affected in CKD. In CKD, a higher salt concentration can inhibit type 1 cell uh, buds responsible for salty taste. Adconces should be lower prescription of salt or zinc deficiency or uremic toxins or higher levels of phosphorus. What do you think? Well, I think that makes sense. <laughs> that was great. Uh, thank you, Christina. And finally, this is my statement. 
Fruits and vegetable intake of up to two to four cups per day is the equivalent of the administration of sodium bicarbonate dosed at 0.3 milli equivalent per kilogram per day in stage three or four chronic kidney disease. Priya? So I'm one of those uh, core believers of DASH diet. Uh, so I think it would do the same magic in chronic kidney disease too. So I look forward to hear from you. Okay, so metabolic acidosis, as we all know, is a common complication of advanced chronic kidney disease. And this adversely affects bone mineral content and can lead to skeletal muscle catabolism as well as kidney function decline. Western diets that are rich in animal-based foods usually contain a high dietary acid load. Conversely, plant-based foods are rich in natural alkali, such as citrate and malate, which can then be converted to bicarbonate. Previous randomized controlled trials have shown that administration of oral alkali in the form of sodium bicarbonate result in slower EGFR decline. Alkali therapy can however also be provided via diet. In a series of trials, Goraya et al. demonstrated the benefits of fruit and vegetable consumption for metabolic acidosis in those with CKD. In an RCT of 108 patients with CKD stage 3 of 3 years duration, Administration of 2 to 4 cups of fruits and vegetables per day was in fact comparable to oral sodium bicarbonate dosed at 0.3 milli equivalent per kg per day in increasing serum bicarbonate levels for the treatment of metabolic acidosis. GFR decline was attenuated in those receiving alkali therapy, either oral sodium bicarbonate or fruits and vegetables, compared with those not receiving alkali therapy. No difference in GFR decline was noted between the two groups receiving alkali therapy, suggesting that fruits and vegetables may be equivalent to sodium bicarbonate for this purpose. Further, the groups receiving fruits and vegetables benefited from a mean 3.7 kg decrease in weight and a mean 7.4 mmHg decrease in systolic blood pressure after three years compared with the sodium bicarbonate group. Similar findings were also noted in an RCT of 71 participants with CKD stage 4 that lasted for a year. Additionally, compared to high-potassium, high-acidic, meat-rich diets, plant-based foods may promote distribution of a greater proportion of dietary potassium intracellularly and excretion of potassium in stools by increasing fecal bulk in the way of dietary fiber, so you may have a two-in-one advantage with this. In short, I often advise my patients to eat more like a hippie and not like a truckie. So that's a wrap from our side. That was a very exciting session and we certainly learned a lot about myths and facts on diet and CKD. And hopefully you did too. Thank you so much for listening in.